Welcome to Back from the Brink. I am Todd Brinker. Aaron will be joining us shortly. Uh, we hope that you're having a wonderful Monday morning if you're listening live. And if you're listening to this later, then we hope you're having a wonderful time whenever you listen. So um, part of the reason we did the show is because we run out of time on stuff. And one of the things we ran out of time on today was me talking about the nerve run. Uh, I've got a brother who does marathons, and he doesn't have the best technique, the best gait when he's running. And I'm concerned about his his long-term health and and the the wear and tear that you put on your body when you're training for and running marathons. And so, uh, you know, I mean, a a good coach is the right way to go, uh, somebody who understands the biomechanics of running. Um, And I hope that he gets that input. You know, I know he's done several things online, and there's lots of resources online for looking at your gait and looking at your running and how to make adjustments. Uh, but nothing can replace a coach watching it and saying, hey, you know, just move your knee here or, or swing your arm a little higher or or whatever to make an adjustment um, to get you into a good uh, motion. I know that as a swim coach, that's something that I do. And in fact, it's funny because you sort of learn uh, without even trying. You end up memorizing uh, different swimmers motions so that like I can identify a kid amongst 60 kids in a pool uh, just by watching them swim you know I'll have a parent come walk on deck and say hey where's my kid you know is he here and I look at the pool and just watch them swimming head down don't even see their faces and just go okay that's him over there you know or that's her over there because I can see the way they move in the water I know how they move through the pool and and you know it's very subtle differences in some cases in other cases it's so obvious to see how they move um, that you can just identify them pretty quickly. Um, you know, I've had several pairs of twins over the years, and a couple of them very identical, um, and yet their gait is different. Their movement is different in the pool. Their their biomechanics are different, and so you look at them and you go like, okay, there's you know there's this one and there's that one. I can tell them apart by the way they swim, more so than than just standing talking to them. Um, so interesting stuff. Um, get a coach. But for runners, there's also some cool technology. There's these inserts that go into your shoes, and each one has 32 different um, sensors in it. And then it attaches to either a Garmin Run or a an Apple Watch and then to your phone and provides you in information and feedback on how your foot strikes are happening, whether you're hitting heel first, toe first, inside of foot, outside of foot, you know, what the rotate. And a lot of that has to do if you adjust to get your foot strikes correct, then then you're then it's forcing you to change your gait to get a better running position. And um, and it's really, really cool. In fact, it was an award winning product at CES this year in 2020. So it's pretty new. Um, the one drawback I'll say is it's not cheap. I think it's about $299 for a set of these insoles. So here's Aaron. Let's have her join us. Hey, Aaron, how are you? I'm good, Todd. How are you? Good, good, good. So I was just talking about the nerve run insoles that we kind of ran out of time on the show. Um, and it's really kind of cool because what it does is it measures the foot strikes as you're oh, lost, Aaron. Let's see if we get her back. Are you there? Nope. She keeps coming in and coming out. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, um, so anyway, I mean, if you're if if you know you've got the money to do it, I think they're a good idea. Hello. Okay. So this is really annoying. I don't know why this call keeps getting dropped. Thank you, internet. 
Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> technology, it happens. Um, you know, more often than not, we don't have too much uh, trouble. Once we got past the user error when we first were starting to do this, you know, it was a live stream. Uh, and, and me actually hitting the button to say, yeah, start streaming. That's the other minor thing. You know, I've done, I've missed that a co- <laughs> once or twice, um, you know, but hey, we're live streaming now and, and recording. So, you know, it's awesome. Uh, and, and you're connected and still talking. So yeah, I was talking. I was talking about the Nerve Run uh, uh, insoles and app, and uh, and saying that you know I think there's some really cool technology there. And by measuring your foot strikes, and and telling you when your foot strikes are not uh, biomechanically correct, that if you make adjustments and it gives you immediate feedback, that it then then you adjust your your gait and your motion and your and the biomechanics of your running automatically. And so it can yes. help you that way. The downside is. That, um, you know, it's a brand new technology, and so therefore, as with most new technologies, it's not very cheap. It's $299 for a set of these insoles. Wow. Um, and that's that's a pretty big expense. It, you know, if you're a pretty serious runner, um, it might be worth it. But even then, you know, sometimes worth it isn't the right uh, term. It's like, can I even afford this? You know, I mean, in the time of COVID, people have lots of time to run, but maybe not so much time to actually, uh, you know, make money to pay for a three hundred dollar uh, piece of equipment that's going to help them run better. Um, so I actually think that the, you know, if you, for him, he has a gait. He shuffles. Right. He doesn't. You know, if you look at the real runners, the, I mean, I say the real runners. He's yeah. a real runner, but you look at the ones with the very efficient gait. They they right. they they lift their legs up. They yeah. He doesn't kick know, his knees up the way a a what you would typically think of as a runner. Right. He, he he. You're right. Shuffling is kind of it. He does a a light jog is what he does. And but you realize how he started at this, right? I mean, he basically uh, you know had a had a doctor say you know you've got some health issues, you need to be more active, and he started walking. Yes. And after a while, I'm he not noticed being critical. No, 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 no. I'm just explaining, yeah. you know, to, for yeah. those who, who and, and, and like a lot of people, you know, you start out walking. And so you start walking and you're doing it regularly. And after a while, you realize that even though you maybe have increased the pace of your walking, your heart rate's not getting up very high because your body is adapted. You've gotten in better shape, which is a good thing. But you want to kind of keep going. And so then he just picked up his pace. He's never had any formal training. He's never been part of a track team. He's never had a coach watch him and say, you know, hey, biomechanically, you need to do X, Y and Z. Um, you know, and, you know, I was sharing that like when I coach swimming, uh, you know, that's what I focus on is the biomechanics so that you don't have shoulder injuries and and things that are prone to swimmers. And, um, you know, everybody's a little bit different. I can identify two identical twins swimming much more easily than I can when they're standing next to me on the deck. And I've done that because they, they have a different motion in the water, you know? And so I can see how they're swimming. In fact, I've had parents come up to me and go, Hey, is my kid here? I don't see him anywhere. You know, and, and I'll turn around and look at the pool uh, and and just watch everybody swim for a second and go, oh, she's right over there. You know, fourth lane over, third kid. You know, because I can tell just with their face in the water, but just how they're moving through the water, I can tell who's who. And it's funny how I, you know, came to realize that at one point because it's like it just happens. Because you're focused so much on watching how they move. You know, watching how their their hips rotate and how high how they, the the position that they hold themselves in in the water, and the same thing is going to be true for a uh, a running coach. They're going to be able to identify uh, people by their gait and look at their motion and and be able to say, okay, here's some adjustments you need to make in order to make 
you know, uh, a, a better, biomechanically better, more efficient runner. And, you know, honestly, I mean, as, as cool as this nerve run thing is, and again, being a techie, I'm very drawn to these kinds of things. Um, I think he might, you know, be better off. You know, he said he's working with a physical therapist or somebody. Is find a, a good coach as well. Um, you know, yeah. and, spe- and spend just a few, few bucks with a coach and some time having a coach watch you and/or watch video of you running, to just kind of go, okay, here's a few things you need to do: do this, do this, do this. Um, I know I've coached him briefly when he was looking at triathlons uh, in in swimming. And watched him swim and said, okay, here's a couple things you need to do to focus on. You know, and I'm not telling you how to make a perfect stroke. I'm saying here's a couple things. And when you're done with it, once those things become integrated into your stroke, then I could probably give you a couple more and then, you know, a little further down the line, a couple more. But that's how coaching goes. You don't say here's the 47 things you need to do to make it perfect. You say here's a few, <laughs> here's a few adjustments, two or three, focus on these, make that, that'll get better. Then when you got those down and those become habit and you do it that way, then we'll give you a few more, you know. And that's just good coaching. Um, and the, and the system, the program that he's doing with the physical therapist, it's, he, it's an online program. I mean, he paid for it, uh but it's an online program and, and there's basically exercises that, Mm -hmm. that can help strengthen, um, uh, parts of him that he's not really using efficiently. So, um, and so that's what, that's what he's doing. And, and he has an issue with flexibility. He's not the most flexible guy in the world. Yeah. That that runs in the family. Yeah. (laughs) And so he's, uh. He's working on that, and yeah. Uh, but yeah, he he needs he needs a running coach who can. He does, you know, because the therapist is going to be able to, like you said, talk about about um, building up strength in in places that you don't normally, you know. I mean, it's, I know, like I, he doesn't have the strongest core in the world, and uh, in running, if you don't have a strong core, then you, your pelvis tends to to uh, swing like a pendulum as you run. And that's bad. You want that to be held tighter by the core so that your hips are a stable platform for your for your thighs to then pivot off of. Um, yes. You know, and I know very little about running, but I know about that particular piece of biomechanics based on just some, some reading uh, in the past. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've taken kids out for, air, you know, air quotes, dry land training, which is what us swimmers call exercise out of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> dry land. Ooh. And, uh, you know, and, and wanted to learn a little bit about just, uh, you know, making sure your kids weren't doing something that, that was going to injure them. Um, but obviously that's not my area of expertise. But, but yeah, you know, a, a, at some point maybe he uh, uh, could do thing with a coach as well. Um, but uh, I'm sure that the, the therapist is going to um, help him strengthen his body in the right ways to, that will help running. Yes. as well so well and the, and the problem with shuffling is that you're more likely to fall and he's tripped badly a few times he has um, just recently and, yes just recently yeah it's true and so you know if you pick up your legs you're less you're less likely to 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 trip and so right um pick up your feet and so um i'm proud of him though he's working on it he's been yeah. out every day since uh you know uh he's like 19 days straight um mm-hmm. So, you know, trying to, trying to run, he's doing a virtual marathon. I signed up for that too. And I've done popcorn. So <laughs> I need to, I need to get myself moving. The challenge is, is that it's really, really hot. Yeah. So yeah. even our cool days, it was toasty. By the time we got out of here, it's getting warm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and we tried to do, you know, evening podcasting and it just didn't work. So, cause I yeah. often work until 
seven, eight o'clock at night. So yeah. I, I want to point out, I, I'm i happy to do it whenever you want to. No, no, I blamed it on myself. I totally blamed it on myself. I, I yeah. did. I, yeah. You know, no, I it's, didn't realize it's... that my workload would increase as much as it has. Yeah, and you've got that that I don't. As much as I would love to be coaching in the evenings and not be available in the evenings, I'm not because the, the pool facilities are run by a school district and the school district is closed. They've just said we're not letting anybody on the in the facilities. And, uh, so when the know, school so, year starts, is that going to change? Well, if you look at their facilities uh, website, that the place you go to, like, go in and, and reserve the facilities, they have a line on there that says we will, uh, you know, evaluate this situation in the fall. Actually, let me get the – I can get you the exact wording. Uh, they say – they're not accepting facilities reservations at this time. Our facilities remain closed to the general public. Staff will be, be transitioning to begin preparations for this. That's, boy, can you get any vaguer than that? We'll be transitioning to begin preparations for the successful reopening of school sites in the fall. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, they will be. They in other be, words, we have no idea. Yes, we'll be transitioning to begin preparations. We're not actually going to open anything. We're just going to transition to begin preparations. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, that's that's really really vague, and and like most of the school districts, I think a lot of them were still trying to struggle about like, well, do we open on the ground? Do we open virtually? Do we open, you know? And the governor kind of came in and said, no, you're all opening online um, last week, and so now they're all shuffling around, going, okay, well, I guess that means we're opening online with virtual classrooms again. So now we need to figure out exactly what that means for our faculty and staff and how that affects all of them and and again all those kids who got meals at school are we going to continue to have like you know drive-through pickup meals at school so that we'll have food service staff there you know handing out bags of of breakfasts and lunches and stuff that parents will have to come pick up i mean yeah i agree i think they're going to have to but it's just you know that just adds a whole nother layer of logistics that have to happen for a school that yeah. isn't the way they're used to running things and so you know you can't just show up in the fall and go okay we're back to normal because we are not normal's a long way from here you know it's it's the need for food is is has gotten a greater yeah. through this as people have lost jobs or or been um uh furloughed or gone part-time or you know mm-hmm. uh businesses made adjustments based on this COVID problem and right. you know Tobin has been volunteering with his district's food service nutrition services department to hand out food and the lines are very long and getting longer for yeah. people who need food and people who you know you didn't think that they didn't think they would ever need to be in a line like that you know yeah exactly yeah they yeah, find I think both it's... parents are out of work and oh my god yeah and suddenly it's like oh uh-oh we we you know it, we're running out of ways to feed our kids, and so we need to, you know, hey, maybe we go. That's, you know, it's a big expense for a family um, uh, to to keep yourselves in food and and good food, you know. I mean, healthy food, you know, not. Right. Not McDonald's. Know, yeah, not McDonald's, not not uh, a bag of chips, you know, um, as much as we would all love those salt and vinegar chips. Um, they are so good. But, uh, yeah, you know, you've got you to gotta think about your kids and say, well, what, what makes sense here and what's our budget? And, hey, you know what, they're giving out free food at the school. Let's get down there and get some of that so that, you know, that, that'll help out. Um, well, and maybe because you're getting the food, you can afford your rent. Or yeah. maybe because you're getting the, getting the food, you can afford, afford to run the air conditioner because it's 100 degrees outside. Yeah. 
Yeah, you yeah. know, you you got to make all those balances. You know, welcome to being an adult and being a parent, right? You make and sacrifices, and you do what you have to for your kids. Um, but it's you know, it's it's a tough situation right now for a lot of people, and, yeah. and it doesn't look yeah. like it's getting any better anytime soon. Yeah. So, on that happy thought. Hey, you know, I, I found a map of uh, that was done by the New York Times. And what they did is they did a study of where people are most likely to run into five random strangers who are all well wearing masks throughout oh. the country. So it's like, OK, so if you're walking down the street, what are the odds that the, fi- that fi- the first five people you see will, will have a mask on versus not having a five? You know, and what percentage is that? all the way from 0% up to 100%. And ironically, and this this is this just happens to play into it, but um, basically if you were to draw, you know, take the map of the United States and come inland about 600 miles and then just draw a new perimeter 600 miles in from the edges of the country all the way around from from Washington State through Oregon, California, touches a little bit of Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, all the way around Florida, you know, up through uh, the the Carolinas and Virginia, and and ending up in sort of like New York. Um, everything on the outside of that line, hundred percent chance, or, or or very high percent chance of people wearing a mask if you see five of them. Inside that line, meaning the central part of the United States from um, Montana and uh, Wisconsin and Idaho, I mean, almost almost zero percent chance of finding five random people wearing a mask. Isn't that uh, interesting? You know, down through the center of the U.S., there's a little bit of a peak in Colorado and New Mexico that's inside of that where there's a higher percentage. But it's yeah, it's the perimeters where people are wearing masks, and that's also where we're having most of the problems but that's also where we have the highest population so i don't know that that's necessarily saying that masks correlate to higher outbreaks i think it just means that a there is a higher outbreak so people are more scared uh and more likely to wear a mask because they know there's a higher out higher uh, number of outbreaks and it's also higher population centers along the coasts isn't that interesting that's very interesting but But, it is you know and it makes sense because um uh, well, the the around the outside the perimeter of the country, people tend to vote uh, more progressive. People tend to be, mm-hmm. you know, um, more conformist. Right. Than than even in Portland, because you know, in Portland, being conformist means being weird. You know, <laughs> they they're very proud of their motto: "Keep Portland weird." Yeah. So, Do you know? Did you know that Portland in Portland? If you're protesting, you can protest naked, and it's not considered obscenity. And so they won't arrest you on on obscenity charges because you're protesting. So you can protest by being naked. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Everywhere else, if you protest naked, then they arrest you for obscenity charges. But in Portland, nope. There's court cases. Actually, in San Francisco, you can just be naked. Yeah, well, then. it's legal to be naked in San Francisco. There is that naked cowboy guy in New York, too, that seems to get away with it. I don't know how that works. But, uh, you know, it's funny because if you look at the map and you draw a line through it, through the center, the West Coast is significantly more likely to have people wearing masks than the than the East Coast. Really? And they were far more hard hit. Yeah. Well, uh, the areas that were hard hit, that area of uh, 
New York, uh, Connecticut, New Jersey, the east side of Pennsylvania, those areas, the numbers go up right in that area. But if you go up into um, Vermont, Connecticut, Maine, uh, and as you come down into uh, like Virginia, Carolina, and uh, and then especially as you get into South Carolina and Alabama and Florida, or the northern part of Florida, Georgia, that, those areas, much much less. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. 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 It is. You know, it's just interesting to see how people are reacting. And again, you're assuming these numbers are correct and that there aren't errors and how they collect it and that kind of stuff. But it's just interesting to see how people behave. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I, it's interesting with, um, with this pandemic, it seems that it, it, and I'm kind of starting to see reports that, that the, that what the version that we have here in the United States, I think is different than what they have in Asia. Like mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a, actually a different, like there's a mutation different somewhere. Different strain, right. A different strand. Yes. Whatever. Well, um, I say we uh, give it back to them. Let, let's let right? them have it back. So it hit our population and mutated. Right. It, and, and I'm not a scientist, but that's anecdotally what I see. It's mm-hmm. because it seems to be um, hitting us pretty hard here. A little more virulent. Um, a little more virulent. Yeah, virulent. Or maybe we're, maybe it's because. Um, Americans tend to be less healthy um, than, than Asians because we have crappier diets. And, um, I don't know. You know. I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. We need to eat more bat and, uh, what is it, uh, pegolins? Uh, <laughs> that'll solve the problem. Well, I wasn't thinking about China, I, 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 though I should have been. I was thinking yeah. about Japan and North Korea. Or not right. North Korea, South Korea. Well, they also have uh, societies where... Uh, people are much more likely to put on a mask immediately if they're not feeling well because they don't want to spread it amongst the population um, and it traditionally have done obedient. that. Yeah. yeah. You know, but they've traditionally done that. If somebody's got a cold, they just put on a mask and start wearing it. You know, and so you, it's not uncommon to see people walking around with a mask on in a lot of Asian countries. And it's not that that person is a pariah or anything. It's just they, they know they've got a cold. So it's like, I'm not going to share it. I'm going to put it on and be, you know, uh, thoughtful about the people around me and uh, in the u.s it's like screw everybody around me i'm gonna be free you know i've got my freedom yeah yeah freedom uh equals in being inconsiderate in some cases um you know and i mean it's uh, i guess okay um it it does seem a little discourteous <laughs> I guess you know a little little kindness, a little courtesy to the to the rest of the world, uh, is is not a horrible thing. So, um, so something I've been doing uh, over the weekend is I watched The High Note. Now, this is one of those movies that was supposed to be in the theaters, and originally they released it as a uh, uh, like a pay per view thing through your uh, different streaming uh, services, and it was like twenty dollars to watch it one time. And it went past that video on demand mode and is now available for purchase and in some places rent. Uh, and I think it's like fourteen ninety nine to purchase it. So it's like every other online movie after it's you know been in the theaters for a few months. So the, the what what serves for being in the theaters today seems to be video on demand, twenty dollars to watch a movie. And then if you want to wait a few months, you can or weeks or whatever it is these days. Everything's been very weirdly compressed. And I think the, the studios are all trying to figure stuff out. But anyway, I watched The High Note um, and it's sort of a comedy drama with Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross, who is awesome. 
and Kelvin Harris Jr., as well as Bill Pullman, Eddie Izzard, and Ice Cube, and Zoe Chow, who I'm not familiar with, but I've done a little research on, and she's done a few other things, and, and she's a fairly well-known uh, comedian. Um, and it's a really good movie. I enjoyed it immensely. So what is uh, it about? So Tracy Ellis Ross plays a character who's now in her 40s who is a legendary R&B singer named Grace Davis. Okay. Now, realize Tracy Ellis Ross is the daughter of Diana Ross. So she yes. probably has some some uh, material to work with, let's say. <laughs> Not that she's necessarily yes. doing a version of her mom, but I mean, you know, uh, she, she's... She grew up in that world. She's grew up in that world. She knows those people, right? And so uh, so she plays this person who, who in her 40s is... Find you know she's finding out that her manager and the record company don't really want her to cut records. They want her to take a uh, a residency in Las Vegas and and, uh, and and you know cash in as much as she can because they really don't think she's going to sell new records. And of course, she being a musician says, "Well, I kind of want to make an album. You know, I've been writing some new music and and that's kind of what I want to do." Um, at the same time, her personal assistant, her gopher, her her sort of confidant person is Dakota Johnson and she's been working for her like three years and Dakota Johnson's goal in life is to become a producer. And so, you know, uh, comedy and stress ensues as she is, as Dakota Johnson's character tries to sort of butt in a little bit. Uh, Maggie, by the way, is, is Dakota Johnson's character. So Maggie's trying to, to realize her dream and uh, Tracy Ellis's uh, Ellis Ross's um, uh, Grace Davis is trying to, you know, keep her career going because she's not ready to give it up. And of course, then um, she uh, Maggie meets a, a young artist who she thinks is is got some talent and some possibility. And so she starts kind of working with him and lies and says, I'm a producer. And she gets some studio time because she knows people at the studio because she's been there with her boss. Right. Um, so she's going to fake it till she makes it kind of thing. And it kind of all falls apart at different times. It's just a, it's a, it's a well done interaction with uh, the typical sort of silly misunderstandings that happen at different times. And yet also people, um, you know, kind of stepping outside their comfort zone to do things that uh, that they decide they want to do. And it's just it's it's a uh, I hate to use the word heartwarming because that makes it sound like it's something about a puppy dog. But but it, it it's a feel good kind of movie. Um, and it's got some amazing music. You know, most people know Tracy Ellis Ross from the show Blackish, uh, which is a very good show. Awesome show. And she just kills at it. She's won multiple awards uh, in that role. And, you know, and she's done other stuff. I mean, you can go and, and uh, Google her and see, you know, her her uh, her background. Um, and I think she has very consciously not gone into music so much. She's done acting and she's taken some musical acting roles, but she doesn't sing a whole lot because, you know, mom. Um, and here she's playing a singer, so she has to sing. Everyone's got pipes. She sings beautifully. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So maybe it'll launch a career for her in, the, in a direction that she was trying to avoid. Yeah. I mean, you can get the uh, the soundtrack. It's, it's available streaming on uh, Spotify and Apple Music and other places. Um, and, you know, there's a mix of her singing with other people and her singing some songs ind- individually. And um, it's a pretty good soundtrack. There's some nice music in there. But wow, I mean, she 
yeah, not not a surprise, I guess, that she can sing. But uh, um, you know, when when somebody is is the child of a really well known singer, and then they very consciously go into acting and and uh, and comedy and uh, um, you know and and are not doing musical things, you think, well, maybe it's because you know they got dad's genes in that area or something. It's like no. No, she she's got mom's. I mean, maybe not mom's talent, but she's got she's got talent, and uh, uh, you know she's just chosen to go a different direction right now. Um, and uh, you know, I hope she decides to sing some more. I really do because she's awesome. she's got a really good voice, really good voice. So, so where did you watch this movie? So um, I went ahead and purchased it on iTunes. So oh, okay. Uh, okay. I, I spent the the fourteen ninety nine to purchase it. Now I didn't wait. I didn't watch it during the during the uh, pay per view version of it because I didn't want to spend twenty bucks and not get to keep it because I'd like to watch it again. I like to watch movies more than once, and so I waited. I waited for it to come out, and uh, and I'm glad I did. I'm, I'm glad I did because it's really good. I will watch it again. It's an excellent, excellent movie. Well, now I now I want to I want to watch it. I have been rewatching uh, Outlander, starting mm-hmm. with season three, and um, now I'm into season five, mm-hmm. and uh, just really enjoying it. Really, really enjoying it. And, but you know, um, Outlander has some pretty enthusiastic fans, mm-hmm. and I've been reading these articles. They're outlandish. About, I'm sorry. They're outlandish. They are. <laughs> I've been reading these articles about kind of this harassment that Sam Hewen, who plays the lead male character, um, Jamie Fraser, um, has been getting from fans, like creepy stuff. And, Why? and I remember it's really sad. And when I, I remember when I when they were the, the movies first launched and I finished all the books and um, uh, the I was part of this group. Um, they were called the they call themselves the Sam Hooligans, Hooligans, because his name is Hewen. Mm-hmm. And these women were nuts. You know, they'd have the Sam sightings and they would look for him and they would stalk him and, you know, and they would get mad when he didn't do things that he thought they, they thought he should be doing. And it's like, dude, he's not Jamie Fraser. He's an actor playing a role for of a fictional character. You guys have lost your grip with reality. And it seems that that, that tendency has kept up. And I, I just that's scary. Yeah. Okay, so I when you said that, you, it sounded to me like what you were saying initially was that they were angry with him for some reason. And I guess, I mean, I guess super fans could be angry if your if your actor, your favorite actor, is not taking or doing some of the roles that you want them to do. But um, but it sounds like he's just got some some uh, almost abusive fans. Yes, he does. He does. And you know, yeah. the thing about it is, as an actor, he seems like this really nice guy, like. You know that he's just—he's just, he's just uh, you know, he's—he's he's fun. He likes to be goofy and and uh, he's very outdoorsy and you know he's uh, uh, I don't know. He just seems like a really great, nice guy. And he's got these scary fans, and I feel—I feel for him. I really do. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's—I um, mean, he's—he's he's a great-looking guy and can do lots of different stuff, but. You know, I mean, he's he's what thirty years old, forty yes. years old. He's forty. He's born in nineteen eighty. He's forty. He's forty. Wow. Wow. He looks amazing. Shoot. <laughs> yeah. But okay. He, but, you know, 
yeah. spends a lot of time working out. That's his thing. And you know, if you if you follow him on Instagram, it's a lot about he loves outdoorsy things. He's very fit. He, um, uh-huh. you know, he this that's that's his thing. So yeah, he spends a lot of time on his body, and and he's become a better actor as he's progressed. You know, yeah. he's obviously in in self improvement mode all the time. Yeah. Um, and I and I enjoy watching him. I'd like to see him in more things. Yeah, I well, just he... <laughs> feel for him because these women are crazy. Yeah, yeah, you feel bad for the guy. They'd probably be upset if they found out that his back isn't covered in scars from being whipped, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like, exactly. oh man, how come you haven't let somebody whip you so you have real scars? Come on. Yeah, it was exactly. You're like crazy person. He's an actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, they do that with uh, special effects. Yes, it's uh, called that's makeup. Not, not really my back. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you feel bad for it. You know, it's like I've heard people say, I, I would love to be wealthy, but I don't ever want to be famous because famous carries so much weight with it, right? Yeah. Um, and whether it's, you know, one crazy person or it's, you know, hundreds of crazy people, um, people can get a little nutty and they, they dehumanify uh dehumanize is the right word there um uh the object of their uh obsession right they 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 do that a lot and i feel bad for you know i mean there are there are numerous instances beyond even you know like john lennon of of fans going nutso and then somehow doing harm to this person that they've objectified this this because they didn't behave in the way that they thought they should you know as a fan or or they get into some sort of delusional state about who that person is or who they're supposed to be. Um, and it's a Rebecca little scary. Rebecca Schaefer, I think about her. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's horrifying to think, you know, you can open your front door, you know, if you're a well-known actor. And, and in L.A., well-known actors just live in a house down the street, you know. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you live next to the people. guy. Exactly. You know, they their next-door neighbors, you know, run a taco bell and and the other next door neighbor you know is you know a key grip on a movie and 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 the other next door neighbor you know works in, in an office and his wife's a secretary in a different office and you know and they 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 just live in a neighborhood and so it's not like most of these people have security people around them and then when when the really big stars end up that way people give them a hard time saying well why do you have to hide behind you know gated homes and things like that it's like because there's crazies out there. I can't yes. walk down the street, you know? Yes. Not a and life I a, would want. Diana Gabaldon has a way of writing that is very intimate. So mm-hmm. you really feel a connection to the characters in ways that you don't necessarily in other books. And that's yeah. been you also see them naked a lot. You in do. In terms of intimate. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed, indeed. But there's lots of authors who do that. Yeah. But, Game um, of Thrones. Um, so, yeah, but, you know... I think that when when they finally made these into a movie, these people, these crazy people, felt like you know they already had a relationship with Jamie Fraser. But the thing right. about it is, Jamie Fraser doesn't exist. Sam Hewen is the actor playing Jamie Fraser, a fictional character, right. and these you know this this blurring of the lines that seems to have happened for some of these super fans is is really terrifying. Yeah. Well, and Blurred Lines is such a rip-off anyway. <laughs> but I'm dumps. <laughs> <laughs> Left turn. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. 
I just remain had to throw grounded that out in, there. Yeah, it, remain it, grounded it, in reality, people, I guess, yeah. is the moral of the story, right? Yeah. In reality. Speaking of lack of... Re- stars, they're just actors. Yeah, they're they just peeps. Job. They're just peeps. You know, yeah. they have lives just like you do. You know, yeah. I just... I mean, would there be, are there some of them that I'd like to have a beer with? Well, yeah, but so? Yeah. Apparently, Ellen's just peeps, too, but apparently he's a horrible boss. You know what? I keep hearing that. It keeps coming out more and more. So either it's a concerted effort by people to to make her look bad, or maybe there's a kernel of truth to this, that former a lot of former employees are coming out saying, oh, it was horrible, that they worked in if fear. You, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you had a really good boss, you wouldn't come out and say she was horrible. Right. You would, be, I mean, you would feel defensive if somebody had mm-hmm. put her down. You know, um, yeah. clearly Buzzfeed. enough people have come forward and, and for Ellen, saying that Ellen is is abusive. Yeah, that you know, it's it's hard to say that they're all lying. Well, BuzzFeed spoke to one current and ten former employees, uh, and they said that they were fired after taking medical leave or bereavement days to send, uh, attend funerals. One employee claims she was fed up with comments about her race, essentially walked off the job. Others said they were instructed by their direct managers not to speak to Jermaine. Degenerous. If they saw her around the office, don't make eye contact. Don't speak. Most former employees blame executive producers and other senior managers for the day-to-day toxicity, but one former employee said that ultimately it's Ellen's name on the show, and she really needs to take more responsibility for the workplace environment. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and, and here's the thing. I don't. And, and maybe this isn't Ellen's fault. I don't know. We don't know these people. But. Every time I see Portia de Rossi in anything where she's not acting, like when she's just being herself, mm-hmm. she looks miserable and has for a long time. Portia being Ellen's wife. Right. And so, you know, I mean, she looks miserable and and unhappy and depressed. And, you know, if, if, if you're with somebody who brings joy, chances are you're not going to feel that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's one of those things that, um, I mean— it, it, it's a story that has been told before. You don't know how much truth there is to it. That uh, comedians are miserable people when you're not when they're not on stage. That yeah. they are always thinking in terms of you know how can I use this as a punchline? Can I use that? They're perfectionists. They they you know they're always thinking about at least the ones that that are successful um, are very focused on that. And that a lot of them um, uh, you know if you're not a comedian or a or thinking about being on stage then you're you're probably not that interesting to them in a lot of ways it's fun um on his show uh comedians in cars getting coffee jerry seinfeld has said that you know the reason he started doing the show is because those are his favorite people to be around now that doesn't mean that he's you know a pill to other people and in fact he's one of the comedians who like several times when he's been on a show and there's other people waving and stuff or or asking for um an autograph he's like the other guy goes you stop and do that he goes yeah why what's it cost me brings them some joy why wouldn't i do that you know and and some of the others are like no i just keep going you know so um he seems like he's made a conscious decision to say you know if i can bring some happiness to somebody you know just that i happen to you know bump into at the donut store or at the coffee place then why shouldn't i because you know literally what does it cost me it costs me nothing to do something that they will remember and go home and say, hey, guess who I talked to or who I saw, you know? So why not get a selfie with with somebody? Uh, Whereas a lot, I think, of comedians are like, leave me alone. Let me have a life, you know? And you got to strike a balance, I guess, you know? 
Uh, you think about those crazy people uh, following Sam Hugan, right? You know, yeah, he, goes, I, he goes down to get a coffee. How many people stop him and say, can we get a picture? Can we get a picture? You know, it's like, just want my damn coffee. I just <laughs> want my coffee. Can I go home? Uh, uh, <sighs> yeah. I, it, it's, um, and when we put these people on a pedestal, we've created an environment where they can let us down. Mm-hmm. And they have no responsibility to us. They don't, they shouldn't have the power to let us down. Why do we give these people whom we don't know power right. to let us down? Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. make yeah. any sense. You want me to entertain you, watch my show. Exactly. That's how I entertain you. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not doing it while I'm walking down the street to buy my coffee. I cannot stress this enough. I have to have my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Me, my coffee? No. No. <laughs> so, or you know, I, you know, or you know, they're not they're not allowed a bad day because mm-hmm. whatever. And everybody has bad days. Everybody does. Um, yeah. You know, and and it shouldn't make the tabloids when you have a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's comedians in cars getting coffee. And the reason the cars are there, it's not because he likes cars so much. It's like if somebody stops him from getting his coffee, he can run them over to get coffee. (laughs) Okay, if Jerry Seinfeld actually ran someone over, that would make the news. That would make the news. Yeah. Well, especially because he collects cars. So, you know, he's a guy who's a car guy. He can't say, oops. (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, you're kind of known for cars, dude. You didn't you did. That was no oops. That was no oops. He says, I didn't have my coffee yet, which should be a perfectly good, you know, explanation for anything you've ever done that was bad. Um, you know, if you if you do something in the morning and, you know, it's technically illegal, if you haven't had your coffee yet, eh. You're <laughs> off the kid. I don't think that's how it works, Todd. Probably not. Be a tough sell to the judge. But, you know, I mean, has the judge really had good coffee? That's all I want to say. I mean, you know, good coffee <laughs> can make a difference. Um, that said, what makes good coffee from, for person A may not be what makes good coffee for person B. You know, it's it's That's like true. the difference between somebody who says, no, I only drink a single malt scotch and other people who go, well, I like the blended scotch because it always tastes good. You know, it may not have all the character and flavor. It's like wines, right? You get a varietal wine. It can be amazing, but it can also be kind of meh. Where you get a blended wine, it's pretty much always good. It's never amazing, but it's always good because they Yeah, blend- I actually really like blended wines. Yeah, I mean, for a table wine, you know, that's what the Italians and, and French, they, they have a table wine. It's a blended wine because you know what you're getting. Every single bottle is going to taste about the same. From yeah. year to year, they blend the grapes to make it taste about the same. They know the flavor profile they're going for. There's some advantages to blended of whatever, you know, and... Uh, um, that said, I really like the character of of single malt scotch. But you know what? Blended can be fine, too. Indeed. And that counts as food. <laughs> and we are at the end of our show for today. We are. We'll end on that happy note. It's way too early to have a drink. But uh, have a wonderful day, everybody. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm Aaron Brinker. You can have that drink in Uzbekistan because I'm sure it's not too early there. <laughs> yeah, it's- Definitely a different time in Uzbekistan. I, I'm not, I don't know what Uzbeki time is right now. Um, but uh, Greenwich Mean Time is about 3 in the afternoon, and Uzbekistan's further around, so it's probably in the evening. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, it's so like a quarter that, to 3. So with that, have a great day, everybody. I'm Aaron Brinker. And I'm Todd Brinker. And we'll see you tomorrow.
Don't forget to stay tuned for the After Show After Show. I'll be joined today with a special guest, my dad, Jack Brinker. So hang on. We'll be with you shortly. Welcome to the After Show's After Show. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm here with my dad, Jack Brinker. We're going to continue the conversations today. So um, so last time we talked a lot about uh, Mac stuff, but we, um, I didn't hit record, so I missed most of it. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I will confirm that we are recording today. I can see the counter going. We are live um, streaming right now and recording. So... Um, Whatever happens, we'll ha- we'll at least have a, a, a recording of it, whether it's good or bad, right? Um, right. Have you done any further reading about um, the new stuff that Apple announced? Um, you know, they, well, they they had a whole pile of, of updates, and in fact, since then they've pushed out updates of the current operating systems um, that actually added some functionality and did a lot of things as well. Uh, no, I really haven't uh, d- done much. I did find find an article where they have a developer's kit out now, so they actually have hardware with the iPad uh, uh, chip in a Mac right. Mini. Yeah, now that was one uh, of the things that they announced was, and they and they've started and they have shipped those out now to um, people who requested them. It's five hundred dollars. You have to be a member of the developers program, which is a hundred dollars a year, and then it's five hundred dollars to get this little. Um, what looks like a Mac Mini, but it's got a an Apple silicone chip in it, which is the same one that comes out of their iPad. And it's uh, been they they bumped up the amount of memory in it. I think they said it's it's got like eight gigabytes or sixteen gigabytes of memory six, in it. Something six, like sixteen. I heard six, sixteen. Yeah. Whereas the uh, iPad has six. Uh, at least the current version of the iPad uh, has six. Um, iPad Pro that is. And so uh, it's for developers to test and verify their software works. At the end of the development period, they are required to send that device back to Apple. So that $500 is leasing it for a period of time. They don't get to keep it. Um, although historically what Apple did was they would say, okay, now you send it back to us, and this is motivation to get them back, I guess, is, and we will give you $500 credit towards buying one of whatever we've released now that actually has released hardware in it, which significant will be significantly faster and different by most people's um, measures. Um, the A14 series chips, which is what is supposed to be uh, coming out next, right? they have A13 in the current iPhones, and all the iPads use A12 chips, so they're even a generation back in this developer's kit. The A14 series chips... Um, there's, you know, there's supposed to be a version that runs on an iPhone and an iPad, and then there'll be a version of that chip that runs in Macs. And rumors have it that there'll be 12 cores in that. Eight of them will be performance cores. Two of them will be low-power cores. Um, but I suspect that that will change depending on the device, right? So if you have a small laptop, say like the old 12-inch, say they bring back the 12-inch and they put an A chip in that, that that might have four low power cores because that device has a smaller battery and needs maybe to run more low power stuff and um and that the um more horsepower machines the pro laptops and some of the desktops 
don't really have as much need for a low power chip, so they might um, say, okay, those will run with two uh, instead of four. So, you know, I think that assuming that Apple's going to have a chip that goes into their computers is probably wrong, that there will probably be a whole variety of chips set up slightly differently depending on the device they're going into, because that's the whole point, right, is they can make a custom chip for each device. Well, if you go back and look at the uh, the uh, slide they showed when they first mentioned Apple Silicon mm-hmm. and spend a little time with it, you'll see that uh, it's very likely that the, uh, the processor is going to have all kinds of other functionality uh, that uh, you're just beyond the computer integrated with it. That's the real benefit of the Apple Silicon from a hardware mm-hmm. standpoint is they've got Apple Silicon in their existing machines, but it's not not the computer. Yeah, it's not integrated. Right. So uh, they'll just, I don't know how much they'll put it all, but they'll, they'll try to put it all on there. I don't, I don't know what the constraints are and what all those sure. chips really need, but uh, the majority of it anyway uh, will be on the all on one integrated chip. Right. And and then of course there's all kinds of speculation about this as you were talking there about but to to, to me the the primary one is for the desktop machines where it's unconstrained by power uh, is how how powerful will that processor be because they're going to up the clock rate there's just no doubt about it. In yeah. fact even for that developer kit people were thinking that just to make it uh, uh, be a good performer, uh, they probably just crank up the the chip rates, yeah. the clock rate somewhat. Yeah. You know, well, and they've done some specs on it. You know, but the problem is, is that most of the apps that do like the the Geekbench type things, those run on the Windows operating system or the Windows the um, Mac operating system, yeah. which means that they're running an emulation mode on that developer's kit. So. But even then, they've right. said it's, it's relatively impressive, which which tells you that a Rosetta two works pretty well, and that b they're getting a lot of power out of their chips. Um, they're they're going to come out of the gate strong. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyway, it's exciting times because this is this is the major development. It, it's akin to announcing, uh, I think, the first iPhone. It's it's one of those milestones in the history of Apple that uh, changes everything. Right. Yeah, it's the first time that they've actually controlled the the silicone in any significant way on their devices. You know, they've always bought Motorola, PowerPC, and Intel chips to make their, their computers work. Um, yeah. You know, ultimately, I don't think it's going to have the impact that the iPhone does just because of the numbers. They're never going to sell as many uh, Mac laptops of any kind or Macs of any kind that they do of phones. They sell phones but, like they're going out of style. And, uh, you know, I mean, just the numbers, the sheer numbers there just make, make that such a significant thing. But I think you're right. This is a major turning point for the company in that they finally control their own destiny. Yeah. So, well, well, they sort of do with the iPads now, but that's... Uh, well, yeah, that's they've controlled their own destiny on, on, on other devices, but not on all their devices. Right. You know, and this, this yep. says now... This is sort of, I mean, it's sort of almost the final step in a, in a long march, right? Um, yeah. Well, well it, you know, uh, thus far, the development has been primarily driven by the power consumption because they're mobile mm-hmm. devices. Right. Everything everything that used their silicon was mobile. But uh, the, the reason uh, that they want to uh, uh, do their own silicon 
is so that they can take that, which is of high-performing silicon right now, even right. on the iPad. They, they've said it outperforms most of the um, uh, yeah, portable Yeah, everything except the top-end uh, iPad or uh, Mac Pro, MacBook Pros, basically, are already slower than, than iPads. Well, you see, they also have the Pro machine out there that, that they want to uh, – that, that's being held down now by the, by the uh, Intel Silicon. Yeah. And so that's where they really want to let her rip, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and they're going to be able to do that. Yeah. That's, that's what they're saying. Well, and, really. and you, you look at what they've been doing, too. I mean, a, few, uh, a year or two back, they, they um, started making their own graphics chips. You know, they, on their phones, they were, they were licensing and using somebody else's graphic chip up till about two years ago when they started doing their own graphics chips. And, in fact, that company then sued them for using some of their prior, proprietary uh, technology, and that case, I think, settled out of court, uh, typically how these corporate things work. Um, but, you know, Apple's doing their own graphics, and they're saying that the graphics in the iPad as it exists today, you know, people are worried, well, you know, are they going to be able to keep up with PCs and have good graphics? As it exists today, the the graphics in, in an iPad uh, already process and, and, and move the same amount of information as the best gaming machines, dedicated gaming machines. So, right. um, you know, and yeah. I know that there are people who are like super, super high-end gamers who say we don't use gaming machines, you know, because they're not fast enough. We custom build PCs for that with better graphics. And so, well, Apple will get better, you know, when they put them in a, in a box that has more room for more cooling and they can crank up the, the, the speed of the chip and stuff. Um, you know, and they'll also have the option of running really, really fast machines with no fans for cooling. So if you want a completely silent machine, um, because they'll be able to make those decisions and do it themselves. They won't have to rely on somebody else and somebody else's yep. heating and cooling requirements. Um, and they bought Intel's uh, modem uh, manufacturing facility and, and engineers. And so they're going to integrate the modems. And you know that we've, we've been talking about 5G coming for quite a while. Um, they wouldn't have done that and they wouldn't have made that that commitment uh, if they didn't think that they could make and control the modem in the same fashion, that they're going to be able to create a lower lower power modem than what most people are using and uh, and you know keep the the power constraints and the temperature and heat con- uh, issues under control better because they're doing it themselves. And it integrates with everything else, you know, and it'll ramp up when you need it and ramp down when you don't specifically yep. tied into the operating system because the person who writes the operating system can walk across the hall and talk to the guy who makes the chip and say, this is what I want to do. Is the chip going to support that? If not, can we make a chip that supports that? You know, I mean, it's like there's just so yeah. many advantages by owning the whole stack. Yeah, well, the thing that's still, and for some time, going to hold back the 5G thing is the uh, antennas. They, they really need a forest of antennas in order to get the high performance because right. distance to the antenna matters. Well, 5G combines a lot of things, and so there's different versions of 5G. The, the millimeter wave one that they're talking about in a lot of the cities, that that bandwidth of 5G, you're right, that's going to require lots of antennas, and it doesn't go through walls very well. So it'll help you right. when you're out and about in a city, but it's not going to help you unless you put up a mini tower in your house, which some people will. There's a push to, to do away with Wi-Fi, and you'll just have 5G in your house. I am very leery of that because that means that I'm now using all my data streaming through uh, my phone company, and I don't have a lot of faith or love for, for any phone company. 
Well, you 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 may recall uh, probably about a year ago, maybe even longer. There was uh, a lot of talk about uh, location within stores. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll continue with the with the change. Whether we'll still have the environment uh, uh, like stores that we we used to have after this virus thing gets by, but in order to do that, they were talking about a network in a store so that you could locate yourself, uh, you know, mm-hmm. within a foot. Uh, right. Well, and Apple's done some of that by including that ultra-wideband chip in their phones now. Um, yeah. But notably, they've not put that in anything else, so it's not been in the iPad or, or any of the laptops that we know of. Um, doesn't yeah. mean it won't be coming, though. That's right. But but that's something to keep in mind now uh, because uh, I... I don't know if that'll make any sense in anything but a phone. I mean, you're not going to carry your computer around in a store. Uh, Maybe it has applications in factories and offices where people do have mobile Mm -hmm. computers and stuff they walk around with. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Coffee shops. Yeah, but but more important is the phone applications. Locate yourself and uh, be able to find things because what they visualize is when you do go to a store – you, you don't necessarily want to do what the retailers want you to do, and that is to shop. You really oftentimes have certain things you want to look for, and you want to know when the heck it is without wandering through a giant department store. You yeah. Know? I mean, historically, department stores were set up very much so that the things that people most wanted, the high-traffic items, you had to weave your way to get to them so that you had to look at a bunch of other stuff. It's like the grocery stores. You know, They always line the, uh, the checkout right. counter where they know everybody has to pass through with a bunch of garbage that you probably don't need but they know is a lot of um uh spur of the moment decisions but but with the advent of online shopping uh stores if they do continue to exist are going to have to be much more service oriented if you want to find something you could you need to be able to find it now and take your right to it you know and uh, that kind of a system could, could enable that yeah you know so that helps make them more competitive with just the uh, off, you know, online shoppers at least. So that if you come to a store, you don't get frustrated uh, not being able to find something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. The stores need to rethink their service model a little bit if they're if they're going to continue to exist. Um, I think that the other thing that they're all going to do, and they, they're sort of starting to do it you know, in a haphazard fashion, but I think that they'll get much better, much better at it when they actually give it thought and set up purpose-built ways to do that. And that is their, their pickup centers. You order it online and then you drive over and you pick it up and that way it's right there. And so the stores that are, you know, warehouse stores are already better situated to do that than, um, than uh, most like your typical grocery store and stuff because things don't need to be displayed on, on pretty shelves and stuff. They just need to be available for somebody to grab and stick in a basket or a box or something or a bag and then carry it out when you arrive out front and say, I'm here. And and they need to be more efficient at that. Yeah, what started me thinking about this whole thing is Amazon has been innovating in the store service area, but it's not been to help you find stuff in the store. It's been to uh, basically uh, reduce the necessary the need for more employees in a store right. to help the customers out. So you've got to replace that help for the customer uh-huh. since you're not, you may not even have a cashier. You know, what do you do? Right. Amazon stores, you, your basket 
weighs stuff today and, and knows all about the product that goes in the basket. Right. And then when you go to check out, it already knows all that. So you just walk out to your car and put it in your car and return right. the basket. Yeah. So, well, and you've got a uh, scanner built into your phone, right? So it's easy to scan barcodes and stuff as you're putting things in bags. Uh, right. And, and there's even been grocery carts that instead of just being a metal cart – have the the bags in them so that you stretch the bag across the cart and so as you pick it off the shelf you're putting it in the bag why on earth do you put it in to a container to take it somewhere so somebody can take it out look at it and put it back into another container and then return it to the container you got it in so you can push the cart out to your car (laughs) you know there's just a lot of moving stuff back and forth that seems very unnecessary in that process and i think yeah, yeah that's that's ripe for refining and amazon's you know attacking it we'll see how it works and whether it catches on it you know, when, when I can see it at, at, uh, at Rayleigh's or, or, you know, your Safeway, then you'll know that, uh, okay, it's 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 made it to the mainstream. Um, well, well, that last one about the, uh, the uh, basket uh, is a recent announcement by Amazon. They've got it in one store now where all the baskets have a number of sensors. They, they have the weight thing, so mm-hmm. the whole weight of anything in a basket is known uh but then they also have some means of identifying it by a a camera or something i i don't know what it is when Mm -hmm. you take it off the shelf so they're gathering bits of information so they can positively know what Mm -hmm. you've got so you don't even have to use your camera to scan it and nobody's scamming them by not scanning things they put in their basket because they're watching you with cameras in the store cameras in your basket and the weight of everything, so they know whether you took something, where you took, where you were in the store, what shelf you picked it off of, what item it was, and and whether or not it's in your basket. Yeah. Right, and and you combine all that, and you can make a real positive ID on what what's in sure. that basket. You know. Well, and so. you know, at at grocery stores right now, those that have self checkout, you find out that they already know how much everything in the store weighs because as you check it out, you set it down on the little uh, side piece. And if you don't set it there or if you uh, bump it or something, it'll come up and say, uh, you know, it'll give you a warning and say, do you is this not being bagged or or, you know, there's a mismatch between the weight and what you said you bought. Double check to see what's there. Um, Yeah. You know, and so to clarify, to clarify what you're talking about is self checkout. Yeah. No, that's what I said was self checkout right at the front end. Oh. Um, but yeah, yeah. And the, so, but what that tells you is, is that they already know the weight of everything in the store. So they have that information. Right. Stores are already doing it, you know, yep. each, each individual item. And so, um, you know, and that's just, like you said, a good, um, follow-up check to say, well, you know, as you add each item to the basket and we've scanned it in, is the weight matching what we thought it should be for the item we thought you put in that basket? If not, then we need to do some checking or do some further investigating or maybe make a beep tone to have you pick it up and hold it in front of a scanner that's attached to the inside of the basket. So you just turn it so we can see what it is, you know, put it in front of a camera or something. Yeah. And, and also no one's talking about it, but I think there's, uh, I, I know there are a number of places that have cameras that get your picture on the way in. So they know who pretty much who you are. Oh yeah. And, and probably by name. Yeah, no, you're right. There've been companies out there selling images with identification to, to whoever wants to buy them for mm-hmm. quite a while. Mm-hmm. Google and, and Facebook make a lot of money doing that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the one place that people got real sensitive about that is they didn't want police departments to have it. But I read an article where a police department's 
a lot of them aren't saying they have it, but they're not getting rid of it either. Oh, sure. Yeah. They're not going to tell you they got it, but they got it. Um, yeah. The biggest concern I think that I would have, and I don't have an issue with the police having it, is I want to make sure that, that the police, and, and this I know is a problem that exists today, is that a police officer can go and do searches and learn things about me, even if I just know them casually. So, like, yeah. you know, they don't have to get permission to go look and investigate, you know, about me. And a street cop should not be able to, you know, just because I know them through, you know, something we do with our kids through the, you know, PTA or, or you know, Indian guides or whatever, that they should not be able to then go and do a background search on me just because they feel like it. Right. There needs to be controls on how that's used. Yeah. And right All now, right. those controls largely don't exist. And if there's laws stopping them, there's nothing, there's no physical means stopping them because, you know, they could be breaking the law and doing it, but they're certainly, they do it. I know people in well, law enforcement who have done it and told me about it. Uh, and mo- most, seem- of, mo- <laughs> most of those police systems, however, whenever they access data, there's a record of the fact that who they were and when they accessed and what kind of data they got. Yeah, so that but they, the thing they, is they nobody's them- checking the logs because nobody cares. The person who yeah. would be checking the logs is another police officer who goes, yeah, whatever. Right, but <laughs> but they can't destroy they can't destroy that information either, so that it's it's recorded offsite and somebody else has to, has access to it, so they can be tracked as well. They can and be, a, but like I said, I don't think there's any. Um, well, just in the, a lot of cases, guy, there's. Go ahead. Yeah, the idea the idea though is that the policeman knows that he's being tracked as well. And just that alone should inhibit any, uh, not any, but most right. uh, misuses. And, and it would if they felt like that fact that they were being tracked actually ever came back to something. But yeah. but when you know that the person who's tracking it is like the desk sergeant who doesn't like computers, or you know, you know that the person who's tracking it is the IT department who has that as the 47th thing on their to-do list, they're not paying any attention to that. They're not going back and saying, we need to tie in each lookup to an actual case. Nobody's doing that. Well, the case, the way that will be used ultimately is, you know, when they have uh, gathering data on a, on a presumed criminal and they make a mistake sometime, you know, like they break into a house, the, the wrong house, and somebody gets killed. Yes. You, you can bet that those all, all those officers, everything they've done, Will be reviewed, sure. All that case will be reviewed. So it's available, and it, it will be yeah. used. Well, and um, here again is part of the problem. The people who do the reviewing don't want to release anything that's going to make the police in general look bad because that then reflects badly on them. So I think that you know we need to have an well, independent organization that is outside of the police officers who does that review. Usually those are uh, lawyer-related uh, things, that investigation. So... Yeah, but the lawyer only gets the information that the investigator gets. The lawyers don't do the investigating themselves because they get paid too much. So they do what they're they, they work with what they're given. I'm yeah. saying there's ways to make it better. You know, like you shouldn't be able to do a search without putting in a case number, a valid case number. So that way, yeah. you can't just go randomly look up friends and neighbors and see if they've ever had you know a drunk driving charge or something like that. You actually have to have a reason for looking somebody up, and it has to be an approved reason. It can't be just. I'm curious about my neighbor, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just think that the, the, 
the technology has far surpassed our ability and our and our desire to manage the technology at this point. And uh, and well, so we, we well, need some better checks and balances in place. It's it's not surpassed the ability of of uh, computer people. It's uh, it, it's the uh, the real issue is whether the lawmakers will come and get the help from the proper people to manage the problem. You didn't hear you all know? of what I said, though. What I said was the uh, surpass the ability and the desire. Oh, the, the desire, desire to do it socially. Yeah, it's it's not beyond the ability of a computer person. There's very little on a computer that's beyond the ability of a computer person. The problem is that's a very, very small minority of the population. Most of the population isn't a computer person. They're not going right. to understand how to manage and how to deal with, you know, putting procedures in place so that things bad things don't happen. Um, they're not their their desire is not there to pay somebody to do that, because once it works, they're going to go, OK, it works. You're done. I'm not going to pay you anymore. We're not going to pay a computer person to come in and actually make it work better or to stop us from doing things we shouldn't be doing or to, you know, th- those are our add-ons. And, you know, when, when you're on a budget and a deadline, you make it work. And then after you make it work, you go back and add that other stuff in. But that costs additional money, and people aren't going to pay for that because people are people. It works now. That's fine. We're good. Thank you. Yeah. I know I'm being very pessimistic about this, but I just believe that's the state we're in right now is that most people who are not computer people uh, it's don't my care. opinion it's my general opinion that it doesn't take too long before somebody uh, is burned by these systems that don't protect us and therefore they they are motivated to go make make something happen and so it pretty soon gets into the realm of uh, Lawsuits and things like that, particularly if if they're not poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know. I, I think that, that people have been getting burned for quite a long time, um, a long time. But, I mean, as these databases have become more and more connected, we hear about all the wonderful things they do by catching people, you know, because of DNA databases and stuff that, that previously had not been caught, which is great. Um, and then we hear little bits and pieces about, oh, yes, they broke into the wrong house and killed some people. But, they, you know, we're, there's not enough talk about how that came about, why that was, was done. I, 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 I don't share your, your feeling of, of sentiment that that will, be, that will resolve itself quickly. It will resolve itself eventually, but it will take a long time, and there will be a lot of people that get burned and a lot of people until finally society as a whole gets pissed off and says, you know, this is an abuse of power. It needs to stop. Yeah. Well— there, there are a lot of people dedicated to that, so I, I don't think yeah. you can hide too much of the this, this kind of stuff. There, there, there are people who have these concerns, and that's their livelihood too. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. But I just, you know, I know it's going on. I know it's happened. I've had people in law enforcement demonstrate and ch- and tell me about it. You know, share with me stuff yeah. that they found on an illegal search on somebody who who was a casual acquaintance. And yeah. and I go, wow, that's scary, you know, and I mean, I'm not going to yep. go rat out the person who did it, but it was like um, the fact that they could do it and do it without any, you know, constraints. Yeah, was horrifying. Yeah. And and I know that exists and it exists in a deeper level than most people are willing to to recognize, you know, and when I sit and rail against places like Facebook uh, and companies like Facebook, who I feel act very uh, unethically and immorally in a lot of t- cases, um, the reason I do is because they are 
at the core of problems like this, where they've gathered lots and lots of information about people. And in our country, anyway, we don't at this point in time have any rights or control to any information people gather about us. Um, that's a little different in Europe. In Europe, they um, are very specifically have said that anybody gathering information about you, you have the right to review it, and you have the right to request that it be deleted, that they no longer that they, and that they don't continue to collect information about you. You have the right mm-hmm. to be forgotten in Europe. Um, you know, and I would say that you know certainly in some instances. Uh, in commercial databases, you should absolutely have that right. I think, you know, you should have, just like here, we have the right to review our credit and, and debate if we see something in there that we think is wrong, but we don't have a right yep. to argue with, with Facebook about crap that they're selling to other people about us. We don't even get a chance to see it in some cases. Um, you know, Google is pretty good about it. You can now go onto Google and see everything they collect about you, um, you know, which is literally every single web page you go to. Every time you're on the internet, um, uh, but um, you know Facebook doesn't do that, and Facebook has yep. a reach of billions. So, yep, you know I, I'm pretty pessimistic about that stuff. I, I I think that we're in a bad place right now, and it's going to take a president to take some leadership. It's going to take that level of leadership to say this has to stop, and this is why, and this is where we need to put some constraints on it. And uh, and and the two people we have who are looking at being president right now are of an age that they don't even understand the problem. Right. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be an ageist. I'm just saying they've been focused on other issues their entire life. They're not somebody who has the technical wherewithal to understand this. Right. And somebody who does have the technical wherewithal to understand it probably isn't the person I necessarily want leading the country. To be honest, because well, that's a different different skill set. Now that means that they could have some really good advisors, but they need to listen to them. And I don't get the feeling either of these guys would. You know, you know, um, I'll, I'll relate an issue I that that happened when I was very young in programming, and I had access to monumental databases in in a major corporation, and I thought to myself at the time, you know, this this is crazy, uh, but it was. It was there, and mm. hackers uh, are all about this, except usually hackers are paid for illicit purposes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they're, they're computer people that don't have any morals or will, will even consider taking a job to do that. Yep. But, but all major corporations, especially their personnel departments and finance, uh, have major systems that if if information were released could create all kinds of havoc and you mm-hmm. know you know they're losing it because everyone's well you'll get a notice from like target or something we somebody hacked our account and got your information you know yeah, now your credit card number you, your social security number your home address your mother's right. maiden name all those minor unimportant things right <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know it's happening yeah. And it'll continue to happen, and if that becomes... Uh, yeah. Uh, it's always a know. constant battle. Yep. It's always a constant battle. I, I remember early on in my career working, you know, and I've been in IT for a long time, and coming across some database files I was going through and supposed to be cleaning things up, and came across database files that were unencrypted and held the salary of everybody in the company. Oh, yeah. I, I did that, too, in the company <laughs> I was working for. Yeah, and you're thinking, why the heck don't they... First of all... I'm way underpaid. And secondly, um, you know, well, the, 
the in you fact, know why is that stuff not encrypted? Why why are we using who's putting this stuff in spreadsheets and laying it out on a server where anybody can see it? You know? I'll I'll tell you about my experience. I was using the word processing system because they had uh, the ability to connect. It was connected to a mainframe where mm-hmm. I could use a Fortran compiler, which I needed, and the company didn't want to go buy one just for this job, you know? Mm-hmm. So they leased uh, some time on that computer because they were already had their, uh, their uh, personnel system in there. And, of course, it being a personnel system, uh, I pushed a few buttons that maybe I shouldn't have, but I was just curious about and lo and behold, I found that information, all the payroll for the company. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, in fact, it was stored locally. It was on the disk on the machine. Yeah. You know? And so uh, anyway, as a result of that, I, was, uh, I had a meeting with the president of the company and said, you're not paying me enough. Yeah. And, yeah. You're not and, paying oh, me enough. And by the way, you've got a security problem. <laughs> yes. And, and I told him that so he knew where it was coming from. Yeah. You know? So uh, uh, I, I, I didn't tell him that's where I got that information, but it was cl- right in the same conversation that I mentioned the, the problem he has. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I got my pay raise, just exactly yeah. what I asked for. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's one of those things that, that you um... – you know, if if you work in IT within a company, you don't people don't think about it, but those people are some of the most highly trusted people in the company because they're the ones who who set up those systems that 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 manage those systems to make sure that they are secure and encrypted and safe. So they basically have access to a lot of information that that you know you would think somebody at that level might not have. Somebody you would think maybe it'd be only in HR or in finance would have access to that, but the right. IT people do too. Um, yep. and, uh, and anybody who has access to those computers does too. Now I know that the, the, uh, HR management systems and payroll systems and stuff have improved significantly over the years. And most of that stuff is, uh, you know, now encrypted by default by package systems anyway, you know, if you, you buy a packaged right. accounting system. So the, right. the designs are much, much better. We're talking about the, um, early days, but you know, if you have a relatively, strong thinking IT person, they can still get to that information if they want to. Um, and so oh, yeah. that's a very trusted position. It really is. You need to think real long and hard when you're hiring somebody about their trustworthiness as well as their um, skill set. Right. Yeah. You know, and perhaps hire somebody to monitor them for a while when they first get hired, you know, um, <laughs> or or have, have make sure their manager knows that that's one of their jobs is to really keep an eye on what they're doing and where they're poking around because... You know, yeah, they can get into a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Were were you wanting to talk some more about some of the uh, other issues that uh, app or uh, capabilities that Apple brought up, particularly in the software? I would love to go back to that. Yeah. I mean, we kind of started there and we drifted off onto a wholly different area. But um, but uh, yeah, I would absolutely love to go back and talk about some of the Apple stuff. Um, You have something in mind? I will I will review a little bit of what we uh, didn't get recorded last week uh, because uh, part of that is uh, is part of the upgrades in the software uh, mm-hmm. changed the user interface to uh, put things uh, organize things in a more uh, I shall say complex way 
it's losing its simplicity. And my concern for people like my wife that uh, when the if you just change the user interface, that's enough to get her flustered. Right. <laughs> no, but, but you know when it kind of a major overhaul that means right. oh i've got to learn a whole bunch and bunch of stuff and i don't think i want to do that you know right so uh anyway can you be more specific that, uh, because i think that that um from what i've seen you're talking about ios or ipad uh, os 14 right right yeah right. and you're talking about that they've added in the uh, ability to take uh, essentially widgets and now place them on the screen next to icons and things like that. But I don't think that's the default. I think the default is they're right where they've always been, which is that first screen before you get to your icons. You just have the option yeah. of moving them in and integrating them if you want to. And if you don't, it'll yeah, work well, the way it always did. Uh, I think that's that was just a part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I I wish I could remember the details of it. Uh, but I think the business of putting things into folders uh, is is a capability that I use, and they did that in, almost by default in a sense. Uh, but it wasn't folders; it was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So what they've done is you uh, the um, uh, what do they call it? I don't remember what they called it, but basically uh, every you could decide how many of your screens were displayed and. Uh, and the very last screen, no matter what you have displayed, so you, I could hide everything but my first and second screen. But my last screen was ba- like, basically like a library of everything on my device and, and grouped by categories that they have determined. That's right. It's, right. it's got it in categories. Mm-hmm. But, again, yeah. it, 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 nothing changes kind of at fun. all. They just added a screen on the end. Yeah. Well, That's the default. Uh, you know they're they're trying to use a, a artificial intelligence i think in the, mm-hmm. in the software to do some some things that you know make sense uh but it it's sort of to me uh, at least in the presentation added some complexities that i can see see getting people into trouble particularly the ones where uh, like, like we mentioned last week the uh, easy, easiness of tapping a screen. I'm talking about iOS devices now. Uh, accidentally and getting lost. So you say, "Oops! Mm-hmm. How did that happen?" Uh, I do it all the time myself. But the fact that Apple doesn't have a backup right. button like Android, uh, I'm I'm wondering if they're not approaching the level of complexity where they'll need to add something like that. Take me back to where I was. And, yeah. Uh, well, traditionally, with may- the phones that had a button at the bottom, you just tap the button, and it was supposed to kind of take you back a step. It stepped you back all the way to, to Springboard, so you could see your icons. <laughs> By the way, it is called right. the App Library. I'm looking at it here, and the uh, it has like default suggestions, <laughs> things they think you might want to do right now. Uh, recently added, reference and reading, utilities. Social apps, entertainment apps, games, productivity. So it's created categories that it thinks are are uh, relevant to me, and or, or maybe those are just standard. I don't know. Um, but it's got them grouped in groupings that they think work. Yeah. Now that's pretty much what I've done. That's how I use folders right now. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, I'm I'm not sure what kind of control i have is to her in terms of what category it goes into do i have to use their default 
I believe the way the library works is it's totally hands-off. You do nothing. You can ignore the fact that it's there if you want, because it's, it's, you scroll one window past your last window, and that's where you get the library. Um, but if you don't ever scroll one window past the last window, then it doesn't matter. And likewise, with the widgets that have always already existed, you know, if you scroll one window past the last window to the left, you get your widgets, and those are all still there. They look a little different, but they're all ex same things that were there. The only difference is now you can also uh, take them and place them in amongst the icons on your springboard background, which is what they call the icon grid, um, yeah. if you choose to. So, I mean, well, the, the thing is, is I mean, I understand your concern, but basically from what I'm seeing is that if you do nothing, it, it basically looks exactly the same, or maybe it's some slight same. visual cues that change. But other than that, I mean, everything's in the same place. Everything works the same way. You have the option of doing some other things, and and if you optionally want to customize more as a power user, then you can. But if you don't want to, then just leave it all the way it is. Yeah. Uh while you we were talking, I was. Uh, it occurred to me there's a one fix that I would like to see made, and that is, whenever I bring a new program down today, I've got about five or six pages of icons in my on my iPhone. I mean, I mm -hmm. don't get rid of things, and I'm right. not a very good housekeeper. So, uh, but guess where they put the new app? Out on the fifth or sixth page. Yeah, the very so last I, page. I, yeah. Now, I have to go find it because I generally, you know, if I just really want to use it, it's a new one. Uh, I want it on the first page. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what I do, what I generally do is I drop it in the uh, bar and then I go back to the first page and move it out onto the page where I want it. Right. You yeah. Know, it, you is kind of a, you, it is kind of a pain. You can You're try right. to, you, know, you can drag it over the boundaries, but that takes time and sometimes you drop it and it's, it's yeah, kind of I would like to see that addressed as well because when I when I get a uh, download a new app, which I do on and off regularly as I'm looking at new things and seeing how they how they work, you're right. I have six or so pages. I have to scroll over and find the the thing sitting on the last page, even if there's space in in pages in between. It always falls on the last page that's that is open, yeah. and that seems to me like a really weird default. I also understand they don't want to drop it on the first page. Because then that means they have to push off some icons that you might have wanted. What I would actually like them to see is have them pop up in a little um, like dialog box so it's not on any page. And then let you decide which page you want to drop it on. Or launch it right from there. Just launch it. Because a lot of times when I download something, I don't care where it landed. I just want to launch it real quick and take a look at it. And then I may decide I don't want to ever use it again. But I just want to take a look at it. And... Well, you know, scrolling from the around download, to... from the, I was just going to say from the download page, if you want to launch it, you can launch it right from there. You don't need to even look around for it on the computer. You just say open it. Right. So that that allows the first use of it. <clears throat> That's know? assuming that you um, stay on the download page while it's downloading. I don't always do that. Oh. So while it's downloading, I go do something else. And then when it's done well, downloading, it pops up and says, it's done. And now I got to go find yeah. it. And it's like, well, in that little pop-up that says it's done, I should be able to launch it and say, place it here. You know, I want it to be on page three and launch it. Or I want it to be on first yeah. page and launch it, you know, or whatever. There should yeah. be, I mean, wh right. why? 
you know, I just I feel like there's an opportunity that they haven't taken. Um, yeah. But, you know, they can't do everything for everybody all the time. So they'll get to it eventually. You know, you know, the people uh, at Apple actually use these phones, believe it or not. And so um, really. <laughs> so I think they feel some of our frustration sometimes. And I'm sure the guy who wrote the code that does the specific thing that we're complaining about loves the way it works because it works perfect for him. Um, but yeah. Apple is pretty good at saying, OK, we're going to add this functionality, but it, but it's an option. You can turn it on or off. In the meantime, it does exactly what it always did. Works the way it always did, so it doesn't freak people out. And they're pretty conscious of that. Yeah. They're not perfect at it, but they're pretty conscious at it. But I think you've pointed out something that I think everybody's had that experience of. I'm doing something, and I bump the edge of the screen, and now I'm suddenly in some other app, or I'm doing something else. And it's like, well, I, how do I go back to that? You know? And it used to be you yeah. could tap tap the button to kind of get you back to somewhere. But now you have to, like, drag up from the bottom of the screen to see what the previously opened app was and then go back to it. And that's a little bit of a difficult gesture to explain to somebody. It is. Yeah. The The other thing that, that they've done that I find is useful is that the little tips app that comes, I don't know where it comes from, but every once in a while you'll get, tips appearing on your screen and those are generally worth reading hmm. i must have that turned off because i don't know that i've ever had tips pop up on my screen oh is that right yeah well it's it's really handy when you get a new version mm -hmm. you know well i would because think so. sometimes uh, i read them mostly because uh i find that there's something that'll that i it was really invaluable. I've been wondering. It's like this one we talked about of downloads, uh, and they fixed the problem, but I didn't know about it. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, that that's what I use tips for. Is I quickly go through it and see what it is that they've that's changed. You know, and you, and usually that's when it pops up. Is I think they've. Uh, anticipated that people are not going to quite understand how to use this new, this new capabilities. And so uh -huh. uh, you ought to think about enabling yeah. it. Actually, I think, I think back, and you're, you're right. It, when, you, when, you first, when you first launch a new version of the iOS, because they, as default, usually turn off new features uh, that will change the user experience, they tell you about them. So they can say, hey, if you want this new thing turned on, turn it on now. Um, otherwise, it's going to work the same way it always did. And and I have seen that. Yeah. You know, so. because if they change the way something works, you know, they want to notify you of it, say right up front, hey, this this works differently now or it works the way it used to. But if you want to do this one extra step or if you turn this thing on, it'll now have some added functionality that it didn't have before. Um, you know, and that's one thing that's always been wonderful about Apple products is that they have. Lots of depth, you know? I yeah. Mean, it's, it's been a rule yeah, on the do. Mac for many, many years, um, you know, where, where you know, you could do it this way. But there's also this other way of doing this. And if you do it this way, then you get this extra piece of information that you didn't get doing it that way. And this may be better for you. If not, don't do it. But, it, but it's there. You know, they right. have that built in. And, I mean, I've been using the Mac since their original Mac OS with the uh, my first Mac had, um, I think, a 6840 chip in it um maybe it was a 6830 uh you know so it was the I, I was there when when they switched from motorola to 
to PowerPC, uh, and I used I, that was mostly at work, but I had a um, uh, a couple of the Motorola chip uh, computers as well. And then when they uh, first came out with the Mini, was when I uh, switched over, and that was a PowerPC. Uh, and I really wanted to to see how the Mini worked and the new uh, OS ten at that point in time. And I remember I bought the Mini. And I got an extra monitor and keyboard that I had and set it up in our dining room table. And I just set it up there as a place to kind of play with it. And, you know, not in my office, not anywhere else. And within a month, that was the default place where my wife and daughters would go to get on a computer. They didn't go up to our office where my computer was set up and they could use it. We didn't really have a lot of laptops then. That became the default computer in the house. And I went, hmm, that tells you something. Yeah. Yeah. People like the way that works, (laughs) you know. And then, obviously, the transition yep. from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, I was, you know, part of the uh, using the Mac environment for that. And and when I originally had those the, that original 6800 series compute-based computers, I was more of a PC guy. I had the Mac because I had to support Macs at work. And so I had it. I used it. I, um, But mostly it was just to be familiar with it so that I could, you know, have that skill set for work because I worked at a newspaper where we had Macs and PCs. And uh, yeah. and all of the advertising and marketing and, and graphical arts people had Macs. And so I had to support those as well. I needed to be literate in that in that world. Um, but the um, the uh, Mac mini on on a power PC chip with OS 10 was game changer. Literally, my whole family just started using that computer. And I went, oh, OK. Huh. Light bulb. Well you, well, you sure remember a lot of details of history. I must be getting old, Todd. I, I don't remember all those details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just roll sort of, re, it, it's a vague memory. I used to have this kind of computer and that kind of computer, but I've had so many in my life right. that, that even identifying all of them today and put them on a list would be difficult. Right. Well, and, you know, and I know that um, you really were a fan of uh, the Radio Shack color computer. Uh, the TRS-80 Cocoa computer, color computer, and yeah. and and that was your hobby computer. But then you were more of a PC guy, otherwise, and so was I for a long time. I never had a Cocoa computer, but I had the uh, a PC. You know, I had a, a a knockoff that I built myself. We, you and I, would go to to computer shows and and shop for parts and pieces and and uh, and better video cards and monitors and and you know, and we yep. built built our own, and that's how we did it for a long time. Um, I do remember then at one point I had a Commodore 64 and uh, actually I think I had the Commodore 64 before I got my first, uh, IBM clone, which is what we called them back then. And, uh, did you get, did you get yours before I got mine? I think you had a Commodore 64 before I did. You traded in, what was it? Remember they had a deal where you trade in a computer and you got like a hundred dollars off. And so you found an Atari 400 computer available for 40 bucks. So you oh. bought it and then oh, traded right. it in. You bought it like on Friday and traded it in on like Sunday. So for two days you had a had an Atari 400 computer. <laughs> I, I I forgot about that. That's right. I yeah. I remember that was that was really cool because when I I knew that what it was worth as a trade in and here this thing was priced way below that. So I said, right. what a deal. It was like, hey, I'm, I can play with it for a day or two, and then I can go trade it in and get it, get a better computer. Because the Commodore 64, when it came out, was kind of a game changer. Um, you know, the, the company yeah. made some bad bets and basically went out, you know, eventually went out of business. 
But um, as far as the quality of the CPU and the graphics and the price point that they hit, uh, and basically the entire computer was in the keyboard, for those who don't remember the Commodore 64. So it was kind of a fat keyboard um, that had the computer in it. It had a couple slots where you could stick in some cartridges for software. Um, it had uh, some I.O. ports so you could attach it to a printer and or some sort of storage device. But remember then, the, the, it used the 5.5-inch uh, floppy disk. This is before the little... Uh, uh, you know, hard plastic floppy disks became really popular. And right, right. and the floppy drive itself cost as much as the computer did, or, or almost as much. I mean, it was really expensive for that add-on. Yeah. And so we bought this, this um, third-party manufactured uh, interface that actually was inside of a plastic cassette box that you plugged into your computer, and then you plugged it into the audio ports on a cassette player. And you used a regular cassette player as your backup and restore storage device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember I had that when I was going to college and my girlfriend who later became my wife <laughs> typed in a paper on that thing. And I went to save it on the cassette player. And because it was using this weird audio interface to write to this cassette player, which was kind of clunky setup, it didn't read properly and then there was like a power outage and we lost her work and she had typed in like 10 papers, 10 pages on this paper. And she, she looked oh. at me and I explained what had just <laughs> happened. And she looked at me with death in her eyes and said, I will never trust you with my work again. And, uh, and, and, well, uh, I think the following weekend, uh, I went with her to uh, Fedco and she bought a typewriter, <laughs> an electric typewriter. And she typed the whole paper over, um, on her mom's typewriter at her mom's office. She had an IBM selector there. And then she bought a brother typewriter, which, by the way, also had a really nice interface to the Commodore 64, and you could use that as a printer. So um, we did do that later on, where you could type it into the Commodore 64, hit print, and it all printed out on a real typewriter. Wow. Kind of slow, but, boy, (laughs) perfect quality. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, the thing I remember most about the Commodore 64 is the Comal language. You bought a cartridge for $99, and it had... Uh, and that was expensive. <laughs> sort, sort of, sort, yeah, sort of like a an enhanced Visual Basic, mm-hmm. and except it was a mix of Visual Basic and Pascal, which right. was my real love. But, but the fact that it was uh, not a compiler system, it was an interpreter, gave it some advantage over even Pascal, and so I started using Comal almost exclusively, uh, and. Uh, that was what I missed most when I got rid of my Commodore, is that I, I gave the cartridge away, too, and I wish I had kept at least that, because uh, if I did, I'd, I might even buy a Commodore today just to play around with it. Yeah. Yeah, Comal so, was kind of cool. It was fun to, to play around with. I didn't have a lot of, I mean, I was I was still in school or just starting my career and didn't wasn't really doing programming per se at that point in time so it was fun for me to play around with but it was um, uh it was very interesting yeah yeah well the the fact that it had that interactive or it was uh an editor built into it so it could uh you could really easily enter the data into the editor and make changes to your code yeah and then immediately press run and it would go. Yeah, you know? it was it, it was, was a an early sort of integrated development environment system. Um, yep. So you weren't going to like a separate 
programmed to write code and then saving that file and loading it into an interpreter or a compiler or something. It was all sort of in one, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, anyway, I I uh, I have fond memories of of that machine, but also the Coco because we had a Coco Club mm-hmm. uh, built around the the Radio Shack color computer. Now, the reason I got that early on, instead of an Apple, uh, was that uh, it was a color computer also. Apple had been out earlier, but mm-hmm. Apple was just overpriced at that point in time. Yeah, they were a couple thousand dollars for a computer. Yeah, I and mean, so uh, yeah. I was very price conscious at that point, and uh, and I got everything, every penny's worth out, out of that machine because mm-hmm. uh, it had uh, several languages that you could run on it. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty capable machine in its day. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was, and and I think it actually had some superior graphics to the um, to the Apple product at that point in time. So it was, yeah, um, and it was way more affordable. I mean, it was you know like three ninety nine or something compared to like two thousand dollars for the Apple. It wasn't even close. Uh, right. You know, Apple has never been a company that focused on price compatibility. They never compete on price, and they they haven't from no. day one. That was never part of Steve Jobs' psyche. It was like, we're going to charge for a premium pro, uh, package because that's what we're going to build. Um, now, it was debatable as to whether that was what was being built in the early days, although um, there was some pretty, you know, having learned about it since then and read some history, there was some pretty elegant hardware designs going into that that, um, that uh, Steve Wozniak was, he was really quite a wizard of of hardware design in the early days yeah. of the computer yeah he was and uh so you know while given a lot of credit um you know he he was um never given as much credit as steve jobs for the building of apple because apple was the building of a company steve wozniak was a phenomenal engineer yep yeah yep. um yeah, it's interesting here. I'm looking on the Wikipedia page for Comal, and it was available on the BBC Micro, the PET, Commodore PET, the Commodore 64, the Commodore 128, the Amiga, which were all Commodore products, and then a couple yeah. that I wasn't familiar with, Compass Scandis. Um, it also ran on CPM and on the IBM PC. A Tiki 100, I don't remember that one. The uh, well, Z, ZX well, the- Spectrum. <clears throat> The the IBM thing ran on an emulator. Oh, it, uh-huh. it was a 64, 64 emulator that ran that, that ran on that, so it it was okay. I loaded it one time, uh-huh. uh, but then I I got busy and never really did much with it. Apparently, Windows XP but, also had a version of Comal that ran on it. In fact, I think you can get. Late. I think you can get uh, one that'll run on a Mac today. I wouldn't like be a bit surprised because like a lot of things, you know, there's people who are aficionados of stuff that are archaic by today's standards, but, you know, still have people who like dinking around with them. And they have, you know, certain niches where those kinds of things work well, you know, especially if you happen to be in, you know, some some uh, area or or a world of of, um, you know, where a piece of technology is used that was custom written by somebody to do this one job, you know. 
uh, monitor this door or make sure that when the temperature on this thing goes this high that you sound this alarm. A lot of those kinds of things were written in basic or, or Comal or some simple language by somebody who worked there, you know, 20 years ago. And it continues to work just fine today. It sits there and does its job. And so, uh, you know, it hasn't been changed. And if it ever right. conks out, somebody, you know, call somebody who knows what the heck this is so they can make a, you know, fix it. <laughs> you know, otherwise we got to replace it completely. Right. You know, so you know those yep. things work. Yeah, Comal was speaking was cool. of speaking of programming languages. Uh, I was reading an article just the other day on one that uh, uh, has has had some popularity on the web for a long time, but it's kind of now taking over web programming, which kind of surprised me. Uh, and you know, I can't think of the name of it. Darn it! It's uh, I remember talking to Alex. Uh, Tobin's boy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot uh, of Python in- programmers out there doing uh, web stuff. Yeah, and that's been. Uh, that's not what's what's coming to mind. No, no, no. But anyway, I I just saw the article and thought of Alex and mm-hmm. and our my conversation with him at that time, and he was really into it. He said that's yeah. that's the way to go. Well, uh, literally everything. And- I mean, almost everything is JavaScript right now. Well, there's a lot of JavaScript, but this thing had a chart on it, and it mm-hmm. showed that this other language had pretty much overtaken everything, including JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and JavaScript is used a lot on the client side. It's not used necessarily on the server side. But but the interesting thing is what it takes it, to make a language like that successful. The original author of the language stayed with it for about uh, 15 or 20 years, in a company that just kept improving the language and and upgrading it based on all the user requests, you know, which were in the thousands. Mm-hmm. And then they finally, he thought it was too much for him to deal with it alone. So the, that that organization mm-hmm. uh, had a board of five expert programmers that basically kept it going. And then finally he dropped out because he was just getting older and retired, you know. Right. After a while, you've you've done it enough. But that's what it takes to make a language successful. So it, it's alive; it never dies. Right. And as you, t- t- and the real beauty of this language, without you know, having a name, it's it's terrible. I can't tell people about it. But well, I've, I've it got a few options here. <laughs> it go ahead basically and talk. incorporated every major uh, style of programming, like object-oriented programming, uh, structured programming. And uh, half a dozen others like that since then, uh, as part of its uh, oh, web-based programming. Uh, so it could do, it could serve just many, many communities and do it well. Okay, and, so uh, I'm looking at a, a page here that shows me the 10 most visited websites based on unique visitors per month in the world. Google, Facebook, YouTube, Yahoo, Amazon, Wikipedia, Twitter, Bing, eBay, and MSN. Not a big surprise. Front-end client side, they all use JavaScript, every one of them. The back-end server side, they use C, Go, Java, Python, uh, Perl. Python's the one I'm talking about. Okay, Python is used on three of the ten. Yeah, Python's been around a long time. That's for the back-end server side. Python is used on three of the ten. 
Others are done in but, Perl, but, but, PHP. But but you're looking at just one area of application. Python does lots of other things. Oh, I know. I'm I'm just See? saying. I'm saying for web pages, everybody uses yeah. JavaScript on the uh, JavaScript on the client side, and on the back end server side, they're using Python, Perl, PHP, a lot of C, um, Java, yeah. um, Ruby, JavaScript. A little bit yeah. on the back side, not a lot, but a little bit. Some C sharp and some C plus plus. I, I, I wish I could point you to this mm -hmm. article because I read it was not a short article. Right. In, well, interestingly, the, the it's an interpreted language, much like uh, Comal. Right. Right. And and uh, the significant benefit is is that it said uh, that the, the it's so easy to just pick it up as a beginner. If you've ever had any programming languages at all. You can program in it very most mm -hmm. likely, and and uh, it gave a number of examples uh, which yeah. I can't recall. There's some issues but, with Python though too. I've I've played with Python a little bit, and Python two was super popular. It was released in 2000. In 2008, they came out with Python three, but it was not completely backward compatible with Python two. So there's a lot of Python two development still going on and Python 3, and they're both still releasing new versions. So there's new versions. There's two branches of the world of Python, the Python 2 people and the Python 3 people. Yeah, it, it mentioned that in the article. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Python 2 is officially discontinued in 2020, but if you've got a lot of code base there, you know, official, you know, means nothing. <laughs> you know, it still works. Well, 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 as I recall, the article that I read said something about there is a translation uh, app that's available for it to convert your code. Yeah, but you know, it's it, it, you know, you don't stick it in and it comes out perfect and working on the other side. Well, uh, I don't know. Guido Van Rossum, by the way, is the guy that that did it. I love that Guido. He's the the Guido. Uh, yeah yeah Guido Van Rossum. He's uh, the guy yeah. who who that. developed Python. Yeah, that's the guy. He's yeah. a Dutch okay. programmer. Right. But anyway, yeah. he, he, he designated himself benevolent dictator for life over Python. Well, that's right. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that was a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Because he really did hang, hang around a long time and made so many, made that language what it was. Yeah. And nothing happened and he, unless he got, he, he blessed it. It was sort of like, nope, that ain't going to happen here. Or, yep, that's going to happen here. Because that way right. it didn't drift off in lots of weird directions. It had one one person, sort of the way um, Linux has developed, right? I mean, uh, right. that has become very popular in lots of different flavors, um, uh, different releases. But basically the core is remains the same because the guy who, who created it sat there and said, no, this is Linux, this isn't Linux, this is Linux, this isn't Linux. You know? Yeah. But yeah. It, it's, it's all these stories about development of, of various things are always have interesting histories, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of like the computers, you know. It was a wonderful time to grow up uh, and and really be a, a computer hobbyist, uh, because for many years there there were probably five or six real strong candidates for. Uh, dominance you know in the in the industry and until uh the pc architect 
architecture started to take over because IBM at that point in time was uh, uh, they when they adopted that that and and of course micro that that also was what brought Microsoft into prominence by having the uh, basic language for it and, and support for it but uh, to me it wasn't necessarily the most interesting architecture I mm -hmm. I remember there were several RCA had one that was Phenomenal, and I I really like the uh, one out of Texas Instruments, also. Uh, but you know, it, it depends who who uh, from a business standpoint supports these things and and gets mm -hmm. people to buy them. You know, yeah, it became a sales marketing deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of of examples of the world where better technology doesn't win out. You know. Um, sometimes it's the first one there. Sometimes it's the one that just gets pushed harder by the marketing people. Um, remember the, the days of uh, early camcorders with beta cams and VHS and VHS wins, even though beta had a better technology. Um, VHS yep. came out a little bit quicker and was pushed out into the market faster and marketed better. And Well, and the other thing is, is that I was uh, a... Uh, a guy that used controllers more than computers. I was in the hardware world for mm -hmm. years there at Holloman Air Force Base, mm -hmm. and uh, I was kind of a real fan of of a hardware solution to a lot of issues, because that was my business. Right. Uh, but to, but today, you can go out and buy. If you're in that business, you wouldn't buy a computer. You'd buy a controller. And the real difference is is the or you'd buy or you'd buy a ten dollar Raspberry Pi, and run Python on it. Because it's built into the operating system. Well, well I, I don't know anything about that, so I can't comment on it. But but a, a true controller business is all about having uh, using a lot of interrupts on the hardware. Uh huh. Because you have you have external events going on, and you want those to trigger an event in order to take action at a particular moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you, you know, ask somebody about an interrupt on your personal computer, and they don't know what you're talking about. There's no facility for hooking up anything externally and and pulling a line up that that interrupts the code you do it says, through usb you do it through usb now you put a sensor yeah. on usb <laughs> and it triggers yeah well not I quite mean, the same way no but i mean yeah. it, but essentially it's it, it affects the same thing right that's how it's done is it you use you use those interfaces into yeah. a general because it, it's a general purpose computing device so yeah I mean, it's it's not so made anyway. Made there's that way. there's lot lot of ways to look at these things, uh, and and uh, there's reasons for why each of these marketplaces develop. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, that's actually honestly, we were talking about that, and we went, you know, we, when we were talking about Python, it reminded me of honestly, that's kind of why I got the first Raspberry Pi that I did because I wanted to play around with Python a little bit, and uh, it's basically built in. There's a Python development environment built right into the Raspbian operating system that you boot up your Raspberry Pi in. And, you know, the basic Raspberry Pi starts at still, I think, at about $35. And you can, if you want to get one with lots of memory on it, you can spend, oh, maybe 70 bucks. Uh, uh, and if you want to get the little Raspberry Pi Zero, which is, uh, it still has a working processor and memory on it, $10. It's a $10 yeah. computer. You know, you plug in a monitor and a keyboard. And uh, you have a functioning, working computer um, that you can run apps on and 
browse the internet on it, do all kinds of weird stuff, and write lots of cool little Python programs to, you know, monitor whether your garage door is open or, or uh, you know, um, whether your dog door has been moved in the last 24 hours and things like that. Yeah. Well, also back in those days when they came, came out with programmable ROMs, I thought that was such a neat technology that one of the ways I saw that is evolving mm-hmm. is that if you wanted to uh, change the whole nature of your computer, you could do so just by, uh, with the power off, popping out a, a ROM, and that could be just, you know, any kind of plug-in that you can think of it that yeah. way. Uh, a bit of an oxymoron, though, isn't it, right? It's a programmable read-only memory, which means it's not really yeah. read-only memory. It's it's write occasionally, read mostly. <laughs> well, <laughs> or in some cases, yeah. write once, read mostly. That's what it was, a write most. Write once, read mostly. That's what yeah. that really the acronym should have been. Yeah. Uh, Later ones you could write and rewrite, but early ones it was write once. So you could yeah. buy the chip, program the chip, plug in the chip, and it did whatever you had it set up to do. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, uh, there, there's all kinds of interesting hardware, which is where it all starts, that uh, you could configure and do a lot of neat things mm-hmm. with. And I thought that at some point some company would come out with one of these kind of machines that basically whatever you want to do, you know, somebody else come out with a new thing, you just make a copy of that and put it on the ROM and plug it in. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> you know, know, I mean, and, a and lot of... A lot of that exists, though. That I mean, exists in just different ways. You know, I mean, your well, thermos, your thermostat essentially has has, you know, a, a a programmable ROM sitting in it, and every once in a while, it flashes the ROM and updates the the operating system on your thermostat. I mean, unless you have an old mechanical one, but the new digital yeah. thermostats all have that. Um, but that's a that's a software update, though. That's so, downloading it. Something. Right, but it's downloading it and and flashing it into that ROM. I mean, it's now handled internally in the chip, so that you could update that, and that way it's it sits there for a long period of time, and it doesn't lose lose its memory when the power goes off. It's it's you know it's power stable. Um, well, the the best software version of what I was uh, envisioning in hardware has been what they call virtual machines. Because basically, mm-hmm. you you just download, and you can take something that looks like a Mac, and make it look like a PC, or make it look like a Linux machine. Yeah. And and they did all all three of those, and they all you can buy those systems from a couple of different companies. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there were two major competitors when I was looking at it, but I, and yeah. I can't remember either one of them. Mm-hmm. But you could buy them for your PC for so a long if, time. If you want your, for a long time on my Mac, I ran uh, a a virtual Windows environment on my Mac because in order to run my swim team, I had one piece of software that only was available on Windows. It was written in Visual Basic, and in order for me to enter swim meets, I needed to have that piece of software. And so, <laughs> and so I kept Windows around for that one piece of software that I absolutely had to have. Um, I eventually ended up replacing that with a service so it's now done all, all online yeah and so now i can do it from any browser and i don't need to keep that windows environment around anymore and so i don't don't uh uh continue to to run the virtual machine on my on my macs but 
Um, yeah. But yeah, if, if and, you have that one thing that only exists in the other world and you've got to have it, that's the right way to do it. And anyway, I finally concluded after I went fully 100% Mac that the problem with uh, virtual machines or any of those programmable things is if they change the the uh, hardware so much that that uh, that in order to be a user you had to have you know change your brain out every time you change these things because the complexity just becomes overwhelming unless you use them on a regular basis and in fact uh, I experienced that even within the uh, uh, Apple world right now uh, I'm on a computer right now but it's a rare thing that I use my computer 98% mm -hmm. of my time maybe 99 is on a iPad right you know well and, and or interchangeably with a phone but I've used that that almost is the same thing they're iOS devices well one's iPad so, OS now <laughs> yeah but but in terms of the operating system the operating system on the Mac is becoming an extremely strange thing to me because I don't use it often enough, right. you know, and, yeah. and my brain's getting old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's a combination of those two things, you know, because uh, switching between like Windows and the Mac, I think for most people, they're they're using a browser. They're using maybe Word and Excel or, you know, Word or Excel. Uh, you know, they use three or four apps and whether yeah. they do it on a Mac or a PC, they really don't care. Most people don't yep. in a lot of reasons, you know, um, the I think that there is a kernel of people in the general population that have been buying Macs because they're real happy with their iPhone and they think, well, why don't I just buy another Apple product? This one works really well. I'm sure that'll work really well, too. But I think for a lot of people sitting down and looking at a Mac versus sitting down and looking at a Windows machine, they don't really see a whole lot of difference. They see a bunch of little icons. They... You know, once they figure out how to launch their application, their two or three applications that they use, they're good. And from then and on, there's they enough, enough, simil enough similarity there that that doesn't matter which machine. Yeah. Now, for somebody like you and I who dig into it and do a lot, you know, I mean, I, I can tell you that in the last month I have been into my system information files. I have looked at my system error logs. I have run a ver uh, I haven't run a virtual machine because I don't do that that much. But I've also had um, the um, terminal window up. You know, these are things that the average person doesn't ever, ever do, much less doing it, you know, multiple times within a month. Um, yeah. You know, so so we have a very different perspective than the average person. And, and for that, yeah, remembering how to do it from here to there. Or if I've got, you know, like a family member who's on a Windows machine and it's not working the way they expect and they want me to troubleshoot. I don't spend enough time on Windows machines on a day to day basis anymore that I have to sit down and spend a little bit of time acclimating myself back to the windows side of the world and say, you know, okay, how does this do that? How do they do, you know, I know what they do. I know they have to do it. So we just have to kind of figure out like, um, how I get there from here. You know, <laughs> it's like, I'm in yeah. France, I'm in France and I know that people in France use bathrooms. Now, how do I ask them where the bathroom is? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, we've been at this about an hour. Um, I think it's probably time we kind of wrap it up today, and uh, maybe we do it again next Monday. Sounds good. I've enjoyed Sound, it. Sounds like a plan. And for Thank those of you who've been listening, thanks for joining us. And, Dad, thanks for joining me. It was fun, Todd. See you next Monday. Goodbye, all. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>